Hey, Kyle, love your podcast. Check out these Earthship homes. They're made out of 100% recycled material, 100% off the grid. They recycle all their water. It's amazing. It's the plan for the future. Peace and love. Earthships, eh? I've heard about those, but I haven't done a ton of research into them yet. So thank you for the prompt. That was a message by one of our listeners named Jeremy. And these voice memos that I've been getting from you have become one of my favorite aspects of this whole podcast. So thank you to everyone who takes the time to email them in. If you want a message played at the beginning of this show, it's super simple. Just record yourself using the voice memos app on your phone. Tell me who you are, where you're listening from, maybe something you're digging right now, something you're super excited about, and you can email to info at kyle.surf. That's info at kyle.surf, and I will play it at the beginning of an episode. This episode... It's one of my favorites ever. I know I've been saying that a lot lately, but it is true. It was just so much fun. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Bruce Damer is a polymath scientist, designer, author, and general explorer of liminal realms. He has worked for over a decade in simulation and design of space missions for NASA, develops biochemical models for the origins of life at UC Santa Cruz, and collects vintage computers and their history in his Digibarn Computer Museum. He has a practice exploring beyond the edges of consciousness to bring back stuff that is meaningful for humanity and the Gaian prerogative. This was a really good one, and I'm just going to get it going. But before I do, I wanted to thank Dan, Mickey, and Amy for donating to the podcast on Patreon this week. One thing that you will not find in this podcast are ads, and that is people because of Dan, uh, because of people like Dan, Mickey, and Amy. Um, I really rely on people like you to prioritize this show, to schedule these amazing guests, and travel all around and keep this podcast rolling. So if you feel inspired to donate, please click the link below the, the episode right here um, and go to Patreon. Super simple way. If you want to buy me the equivalent of a cup of coffee every month, that stuff does add up. Um, and I really appreciate it. Or you can head over to my website, kyle.surf, and click the Patreon link. Um, you can also check out my book club there. You can check out all my documentaries, all of the podcasts. It's a, a cool website. And you can peruse it at your will. So, without further ado, please welcome to the show, Dr. Bruce Damer. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. The first time that I paddled out into big waves and this monster, I called it my serpent of terror, like this big wave is coming right over top of me, right? 
and you have to you either you, you overcome your terror and you dive through it, you punch through it, or you get in the dishwasher and you get trashed. And I knew smaller waves. It's amazing what they do to your body. Like the ocean doesn't care, right? It's it has so much power, and those waves came from Chile, and yeah, and you were being ragdolled, you know, in the dishwasher, and you feel the power of nature, the anonymous power, because there's no, you know, while you're suffering and you can't breathe for two minutes. So you I learned, love that anonymous power. Anonymous power, yeah. Yeah, the, the nature really does not give a shit. It <laughs> and really does not, no. Yeah, um, in big wave surfing, too, you know, you you were talking about diving through the wave, which is a... Uh, really unique experience because all of that energy energy is flowing over you um but you can kind of just get shot out the back of the wave if you time it right in big wave surfing you know if you if you see a wave that's coming at you and you have time to paddle out at it one thing that's really important to do is to dive off at the bottom of the face of the wave because if you if you dive off to uh, on the fa- part of the waves, let's say it's a 20 or 30 foot wave coming at you and you dive off towards the top of that, mm. you won't have enough momentum to move through it. And uh-huh. it'll do something called sucking you over the falls, uh-huh. which is, uh, a, a very unique feeling when you feel yourself sort of get sucked back in slow motion wow. and then rip to the bottom. Wow, and you you eat shit like you, you your face is planted in the bottom. Also known as eating shit. Yeah. Also known as eating shit. Yeah. 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 That that's happened to me. You know, a friend of mine got thrown onto rocks at the bottom. He's bad injuries. Yeah. 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 The uh, bathymetry, the bottom contours of the ocean. A lot of the the best waves in the world that make it kind of curl the way it does are also over shallow reef. Right. Um, so you always want to be careful of where you're surfing and what the tide's doing because it could be a completely different wave now than it would be in six hours when the tide's a lot lower right right wow but as surfers we're always trying to figure out the combinations of waves Mm. because every wave has a combination and a certain waves like the one out front here the combination is pretty simple let's say it's a three-digit combination where it'll break on north swells it'll break on south swells it'll break on high tide it'll break on low tide but certain waves will only break when it is a certain degree south swell Hmm. with a certain local wind pattern on a certain tide. And when all of those combinations line up, you could get the best waves of your life. Wow. So it is like a tumbler in a combination lock. Just click, 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 and then you you have it. Yeah. Yeah. And certain people are black belt swell forecasters. And I'm trying to learn as much as I can from that. But as surfers, we're really incentivized to learn about oceanography and swell patterns because that's how we go get barreled with no one around. Right. Barreled with no one around. That's another uh, bumper sticker. Barreled with no one around. Yeah, yeah Santa Cruz lingo. That's the dream. <laughs> yeah. I, I turned it on and turned off. The, the Santa Cruz lingo sort of seeps in, into conversations in various places. The, the greatest uh, sci-fi st- surfing story I've ever heard was by uh, Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell. Sci-fi writers used to come to our contact conference. And they wrote this book called Lucifer's Hammer in in the 80s and it was about a comet or asteroid impact in the pacific that raised this 2000 foot wave so there's this guy in santa monica 
like he was going out to surf and then this impact happened somewhere out in the Pacific and the Pacific roaring away from the coast, right? Back a couple of miles. So he actually just walked down, like curiously seeing fish flapping there and he realized, oh, there's a big wave coming, <laughs> right? A really yeah, big wave yeah. coming. And so he actually kind of just found himself in the right place. So as the as the ocean was surging in, he managed to take this wave. It was like 1,500 feet or something. <laughs> and and it basically, it went over Santa Monica. And he's actually on the face of the wave. He's actually surfing the greatest wave ever. And the last moments of this uh, novel or, you know, this story is... And then the interstate, the first interstate building came at him like a fly swatter. So the the wave passed through downtown, and then that was the end of the surfer, and it cre- it went out into Indio, you know, in Palm Springs. Yeah, yeah. Tsunamis don't kill people; it's the objects that hit you when the tsunami's taking you. Ah, okay. I mean, when you think about you it, think right? About the it. A, a tsunami. Um, tsunamis are really interesting f- phenomenons. Like, so you take let's say the Banda Aceh earthquake mm. that occurred where the seafloor dropped out a hundred feet in an instance Mm. and it created such a large impact that you know if you the way that we measure waves are through amplitude and period right so it's the the amplitude of that impact whether it's a storm or an earthquake and the period between the highest point of one wave and Mm. the next point or the next wave, right so that's how we measure swells and the larger the period the more energy there's going to be in each swell. So if you look at a really big wave, uh, big swell that's coming to a spot like Mavericks from a storm that's forming off of the Aleutian Islands, that might be like a 12-foot swell every 20 seconds. That's a pretty big, long period swell. But if you look at like the Banda Aceh earthquake, that could be 12 feet every hour. Mm. So the amount of energy that's moving in every swell mm will will travel across the entire ocean right at the speed of sound and when the earthquake happened um the fukushima earthquake we had a tsunami in santa cruz Hmm. and a lot of boats got wrecked and exactly that happened a lot of my friends were surfing out at that wave the river mouth and all of a sudden the ocean sucked back in and it felt like it was the lowest tide ever wow and then it surged up and it wasn't big enough to yeah to, to kill anyone or, yeah but that really is like it, it's the period that creates the power of tsunamis mm. it's mm. not like one big crashing wave mm-hmm. it's just this surge that continues to move because there's so much power in it wow wow another crazy thing is that a lot of animals can predict that a tsunami is coming. Hmm. Have you ever heard about this? I think I have. So dogs and and all these animals will run up the hills before the tsunami hits. The famous story in Japan of the young girl who um, knew a tsunami was coming because their farm was high up on a mountainside. And she actually, in order to, to help the people, she actually set the fields on fire. There's a famous story in Japan, and the people are rushing up because there's there's smoke everywhere, and she saves her village. Yeah. Because they just come to this fire. Do you feel things 
I know that you you do. This is a rhetorical question in your body before you feel them in your mind. You know, just as animals could maybe sense a tsunami coming before we can intellectualize that we see it. Um, it seems that you've done a lot of work, kind of connecting your body response um, mm-hmm. to access planes of knowledge that maybe even your intellectual mind can't comprehend. Yeah, I, I when I was I guess about twelve or thirteen, I read a a biography of Albert Einstein. And in it, you know, here's this, you know, 13, 14 year old kid, me, reading about uh, the younger years of Albert Einstein. And he would do things like ride, you know, do these thought experiments. And he liked to ride bicycles and things like this. But he had a dream, a, an intentional dream one night where he's running alongside a beam of light and he watches the compression of the waves. And that led to special relativity in 1905. But he described later how it came through his body. Like, people think of him as a head case. They think of him as the the great genius with the funny hair and everything, and the tongue sticking out. But he actually was a super embodied being. Like, he felt this ripples and stuff coming through his body as this insight was about to burst on, on his system. And in that miracle year, he he wrote, published four papers that were key in physics. And he was so exhausted, he had put so much of him, his whole body, and not only his mind, into it, that he, he describes in, in the fall, that when the f- fourth paper was put in, I think it was special relativity, that he went to sleep for two weeks. I mean, he just, he's called in sick to the patent office and because he had put everything he had into it. And so in, in some ways, he was my model for, oh, you do science by doing thought experiments and what they are is calling in a dream. So that because your little monkey brain, no matter how well trained, you can't solve major problems through rational approaches. It always comes through some kind of visionary insight. With Descartes, with Newton, with Einstein, and later on with Crick and these people, Kerry Mullis, they always used dream states or they they delivered vision and you could call it the subconscious figuring it out and giving it to you or is it coming from somewhere else no one knows but I always assumed that breakthroughs in science would be done that way and so I sort of set up my life to be able to receive to to amalgamate a hundred fields like just absorb it or the Buddhist expression is open cup uh, and then the insights would come. and But the key to it is strong intention. So like if you have the intention of becoming an incredible, you know, wave, big wave surfer, my intention was I picked two problems to solve in my life that, that I thought were important for humanity. The first was to figure out how life began on the earth, how life, you can go from inanimate matter to a living world, how you cross that chasm. And what that would teach us about our deepest ancestry. And the second was to give life a path into the cosmos. So when I was a kid, it was the time of Apollo and Neil Armstrong on the moon and things like this. And I thought, okay, that's all well and good, but how do we make a sustainable presence for life in the solar system? How do we allow life, the biosphere, to expand from this one egg eggshell home, which is fragile, and we may mess it up, and give life multiple biospheres to spread complex life and us and dogs and 
even longboard surfers somewhere in the solar system, but how do we do that? When was the first time that you wrote down those two questions? Um, the first time, I never wrote the origin question. It was just something I committed to one day while walking out in the hills in Canada. I just simply committed to it. And then I had my first thought experiment right then and there, actually. How old would you say you were? 14. Um, the space commitment came through... I did hundreds of drawings. Like I was trying to solve the problem of mining asteroids and moving them around. This was when I was about 16. And I wrote articles for the paper. I did talks. I did public talks. I built physical models of solar power satellites and space shuttles. And this is before the space shuttle flew. Um, but I, I, I wrote an actual essays about this uh, in 79, 80, that kind of thing. In the origin of life, it was always everything I did in computing was aimed at trying to solve the mystery of the origin of life, because computing was this fantastic environment software where you could build little worlds and they would have emer stuff would emerge. You could watch it right in front of you, you know. So anyway, that's been my so with a strong intention, you tend to line up probabilities. So it's like if you're sitting on your board and you have the intention of riding the best wave of the day. Your whole system is going to attune to seeing the right things, like where they're coming from the south or the west, and to watching white caps, to doing everything. You're going to, you're going to attune to that intention, and I think the universe actually attunes to you, and starts sending you little clues that if you pick them up and you notice them, it leads to the miraculous outcome that you seek. Right. Yeah. It's like. Uh looking for a new car and then as soon as you realize that you want a Subaru Forester you see that car everywhere on the road yeah yeah and you see battered ones and yeah. souped up ones and yeah or you want to paint your house a new color and then all of a sudden you see that that oh I thought I love that yellow I see that on all these other houses houses and there it is on that there car as well okay. yeah you when shift reality when you have intention right yeah so how did you connect your intellect and your intuition? The uh, intuition was always first and foremost. Even so, when you were 14? Yeah, because I saw how, in some of the letters that Einstein wrote, it was really great because later on in life when he was famous, people would write to him. And this girl wrote to him, I think, from Israel or somewhere because he was connected to Israel. He was offered the first presidency of Israel at one point. But she said, I'm a, I'm a young woman, and I, um, I was told that I can't do physics. Uh, and I find math very hard. So he writes back to her saying, no one should tell you you can't do physics because you're a young woman. That's just completely wrong. And I find math hard, too. In fact, what happened in my life, this is Einstein saying, is that I would get the insight as a, as a vision, as trains moving toward each other or beams of light or something like that. I would see it, and then I'd have to work out the math of what I saw. Like, you would get a dream or a delivered vision, and then, you, then you'd have to interpret that into the language of science, which in his case was math. He said, I found it very difficult to, to do the math uh, once the vision had come. Have you ever heard of a guy named Josh Waitzkin? don't know the name. You'd really like him. He wrote a book called The Art of Learning. There was a movie made about him 
called Searching for Bobby Fischer. He was a chess yes. prodigy. Yep. He later on to yep. become um, the Tai Chi Push Hands world champion. And he talks about how he would see plays in chess in his body before he mm. could mm-hmm. rationalize them. And he could feel certain movements and, and certain positions on the board open up that were incredibly complex. Wow. Um, and he would go for those because he learned how to... To trust that to intuition. Tr- yeah, trust that intuition. Because the move would be several moves ahead, and he wouldn't quite see where it was going, but he would just do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. He'd move those pieces. Yeah. I, I think that um, what you're talking about is just so important for people today to be able to tune into because I think that now more than ever we've really lost contact with our intuition Mm. comparatively to cultures in the past you know or Native American cultures for example that will take dream states very seriously now you know we have a a dream that is vivid and we just kind of roll it off as like well well, that was wild as soon as we check our phones it's gone yeah on with the coffee on with the coffee yeah it it what I did, back in 1991, I moved to Czechoslovakia to set up one of the first software labs in Eastern Europe. This was when the Berlin Wall had fallen. And the TV was gibberish. It was half communist, half Western stuff coming in. And I, I realized, this is my chance. They all stop watching TV. Because in order to kick TV habit, you have to like kick it for a long period, like months. Because it's very addictive. And I did, and I realized I'll save millions of hours in the future. Then I realized, oh, there's another source of anxiety. It's called the news. I'll just stop paying any attention to the news. No presidents. It's all just repeating patterns over and over again. There's nothing, there's no evolution going on, right? It's the same kind of disaster, the same. And I realized it's just holding me back because I'm filling my mind with junk, basically. And so as I then cleared out the consumption of media, I started reading books again because I'd stopped, right? And I'd been on the internet since 1984 and I used that as a, as, a, as a tool and it actually helped me write better. And because now, you know, in this crazy political era or whatever, I don't know what's going on. And I'm blissfully ignorant. <laughs> blissfully ignorant because... Oh, it's all going fine. Don't worry about it. Everything's just... Everyone, <laughs> everything's going swimmingly. Well, people walk the streets and they're like, this is the worst time ever. And I'm like, wow, I wonder where they came from because it's not for me. <laughs> you know, this is a beautiful spring. And everyone in their cars are just... Uh, they're in a state of... Yeah, they're in a state of doom and gloom. And right. I said, wait a minute, you know... There used to be 50,000 nuclear warheads targeted across the world. That was a real reason to worry, right? You know, I've been, in the last year, I've been to the Galapagos Island. I've been to Pakistan, Islamabad, Pakistan. I'm going to New Zealand. I've been to China. Um, You know, I've been, you know, pretty much all over. And things are just better everywhere I go. I mean, my goodness. I mean, everywhere I go, people are in better health they're eating better they're connected to the world and information and it's like this is the best time human beings have ever had on this planet by far and if if you'd said in 1990 that this is the way the world would look in 2018 most people wouldn't believe it it's so much better than all the predictions the the state of the world is um what did you do to hold yourself to changing those habits? 
I think that a lot of people want to minimize news and junk thought in their minds and um, would really see exponential growth in their lives if they left that space open like you have. Um, But it's just so fun to look at it. It's so addicting. What did, were there any kind of practices that you uh, employed to get that junk out of your life? I just basically, I guess I reached a point where, you know, if if you are addicted to nicotine or a certain type of binge eating, and then you start to, like, say, for instance, you're, you're smoking and you smoke or you eat something that makes you sick at the same time as you smoke and makes you ill, you start, your body associates, oh, I get sick every time I smoke, and you stop. So if you can create a negative, you know, I just sort of blew out on, I, I, I just became so fatigued by TV and all this sort of stuff that I just, one day it clicked and I was like, oh, this thing is sapping all my prana. It's just like sucking all my energy. And, and even to this day, if I could, I'm in a, a hotel or an airplane, I accidentally see commercials or a news broadcast. It's like, wow, that stuff is so toxic. It is so bad. You know, uh, I need a TV be gone or something, but I realized, my God, I could have been exposed to this for the last 25 years. Yeah, I took a trip down to Chile a couple months ago, and the day before I left on the trip, someone broke my car window and stole my iPhone. And I didn't have time to replace it before the trip. I was going down Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. write a a journalism piece on this conservation success that happened down there. And I just had a flip phone for the two weeks that I was down there. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I had, um, an old school notepad to write my notes and which he's still carrying around. Still carrying around. Yeah. Yeah. And I found that I could more easily think deeply about subjects. And I remember getting back on the plane and flying into LAX and being hit by this tsunami of advertisements Mm -hmm. the second that I got off the plane. And I was, way more attuned to how fucking toxic that is. Yeah, and when we come back from Burning Man or a festival or whatever, and we feel so good and so aligned in our bodies, everything, and then we retoxify by consuming this stuff, you know. So I want to dig in more to what you replaced that with. You you replace it with, with meditation, but... I mean, most of the time meditation is kind of, you know, you you see it in people's lives play out in these kind of little ways that aren't so like, how I put it, like the fireworks don't occur immediately. Right. But I'm actually, I was fortunate because, and you could do this. Anyone could do this. I was living in Prague and this was 1991 and, and just there were cafes starting to open again and businesses were starting up again. And I thought, okay, what do I replace this? I'll just take the tram, tram 22 from Bilahora into Prague, and I'll start exploring. And I found underground cavern speakeasies. I found this fantastic cafe that had just opened. I found a poetry reading that happened every week. I made all these friends, and then I I replaced a media life with an actual life. And I realized this is the way people actually entertained themselves in the past they went into the town square and they met people and they did things and they had egg sandwiches and then they took a canoe trip to southern bohemia and i realized 
before media, this is how people filled their free time. Go sit in the back garden conversations because every check had a well-stocked library, you know, of sometimes all the books were pre-World War II because under the communist system there weren't hardly any books that were published after the war that weren't like these official crazy histories of the country that weren't right. So people, but people were intellectuals. You know, Václav Havel was president. He was like a philosopher, for goodness sakes, and a playwright. And so it was like, wow, you could find people to have great conversation anywhere would, would have a great conversation with. Yeah, it's nourishing. Yeah, totally. Um, the point I was I was making was that I think that uh, meditation is beneficial for pretty much everyone, but mm-hmm. the kind of meditation that you're using is and the channeling that you're doing, which I want to mm-hmm. learn more about, you're using to um, map the rover Mars landing mission mm-hmm. and yeah. these you know really exciting projects. And it all we, in our earlier conversation, you're, you're you were asking, when can Kyle wrap a, a, a ribbon or a bow around his life and decide who is Kyle and what's Kyle's mission in the world? And what the 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 advice I would give to you and to anyone is, it takes time. Like for truly great missions, you you do some of this and then you do a bit of this and you get moved by passion to do X, and and you follow your passions when you keep that little jewel of intention and. In my 40s, it started to come together. So my mid-40s was like, okay, the the passion for space has turned into 25 projects for NASA. They funded me to do all these projects and design work. And then the origin of life thing has turned into the PhD work I did. And then the weird computer collecting I was doing, vintage computers, turned into a connection with David Deemer at UC Santa Cruz. because I only met him because I had a Cray supercomputer in my barn and a story was written in the Sentinel or somewhere here in Santa Cruz, and then somebody mentioned it to him, or he mentioned it to somebody in the chemistry department, and they said, well, we know this person. Would you like to meet them? And then that's been the scientific partnership. So by, for, by being obsessed with collecting old computers and telling the story of computing, my entire origin of life dream came true in an instant. So you're following another path, and boom, it's, it flips. And... When I was in my 20s, I got the message that it'll come together in your 50s, so be patient, you know, because if it's, you're stewing a beautiful meal, you need time, and any great thing worth doing, some people sort of do it right away in their 20s, but often the hard things or the the world-changing things takes decades and decades and I knew all my life that it would take decades to reach the solutions to the origin of life and the future movement of life into the cosmos, and that perhaps I would not live to see those being tested out fully. You know, th- these are things you give to the future, you know, and, and maybe 50 years before that comes about. Yeah, I think that's uh, remarkably patient of you <laughs> to have that insight also in your 20s. I think that I'm mean, just speaking personally. Like I, I certainly have the, you know, intellectual insecurity and the feeling of like wanting to make my mark now. But I hope. But one thing that's been really helpful for me is to to be able to sit down with people like yourself and Chris Ryan and Jim Fadiman, who have that yeah. perspective and can kind of pat me on the head and say, "Just <laughs> take your time." Yeah. And, uh, and mentorship, which is what you're getting. 
mentorship is so important and for young people, especially young men listening to this podcast. Back in the old days, like a thousand years ago, you would want to become a journeyman carpenter or a book printer, you know, 500 years ago. You had to have guidance and a mentor to train you always. And if you, if you can find that, you can really make it. And in science, the, the funny thing about science is the current Nobel Prize winner in physics, you know, their advisor or two back was a Nobel Prize winner and blah, 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 and always go. And, and their advisor back six or seven things was Isaac Newton. It, it's always that chain. So the big successes, they always have lineage, you know, ancestral lineage. Um, which you can make in science, which is great. You get attached to somebody and you train with them and they mentor you. Now you're attached to this lineage of, you know, hundreds of people that help train them. And of course, you're, you have this pile up of potential for success because you have lineage. It's like ancestral lineage. How would you recommend that someone in their 20s reach out to a mentor? and make it worth it for that mentor to take them under their wing? Well, the, the thing is that a lot of these people really value mentorship of younger people. And in, in science, that's a built-in. Like if a student is doing new work, their name goes on the paper first. They win the awards because you're trying to push people forward and make them successful. So you're, the senior principal investigators are last on the paper. That's, that's just the way, it's the technique that works to encourage a young person like, oh, their paper just won an award in PNAS and, you know, they're super on fire and they're likely to become a scientist. Whereas, you know, there's, there's a high dropout rate in, in science because there's so few jobs. Um, I think that really, I mean, you, you do your independent work for a long time, you read around in the field, don't fall into the sway of, pseudoscience uh, because there's a lot of it out there you know look for people that are published really are really doing real work not just sort of suicide statements about the reality that you look them up and they're nowhere right it's just all made up out of their heads so find real people study them and then study the person and then seek the connection go to a conference or two at a conference you'll meet people uh, and then approach people, and they're just very open in general. Uh, the ones that are quite closed are the ones that are just overworked. They, they've got 30 graduate students. They're a, a PI at, at Harvard, and you, you just have no way in. So actually look for the older people that are either after their careers or they're in emeritus positions. Often they're available. I think that's fantastic advice. Yeah. How would you recommend um, someone like myself differ differentiate real science from pseudoscience? Well, it's generally um, pseudoscience is it's sort of close to conspiracy theory. There's always like an angle uh, because real science will always say, well, here's this basis of this work. It's a hypothesis. It's on it being worked. They won't make strong declarative statements. They'll be very conservative in the language, and they'll have hundreds of references to prior work, and they'll be published in a reputable journal. You know, that's that's it. That's real science. Everything else is not, um, because there's a filter there to to keep the trash and the noise out. Otherwise, we can't make progress. Right. 
And so, yeah, it, it's pretty easy. Like conspiracy theories are very easy to to nail, right? Everybody's got a radar for that because there's always some group to blame. There's always something to push or sell. Uh, there's always an emotional thing, you know, you know, like the chemtrails thing where there's this claim that is, you know, or it goes on and on for years and years, like UFO sightings have gone on for years and years with no resolution, you know, and it's like, okay, it's been 50, 60 years and where's, where are the artifacts? You know, right. Yes. Where's the, where's the actual evidence? Yeah. Yeah. I think that is an interesting way to look about it is, is things that have been claimed for years and years and years, but nothing new or nothing kind of ta- ever been, tactile yeah. has been what do you think about the ufo phenomenon i think I, I would go with what terrence mckenna used to say that it's like a psycho it's a psycho objectification it's, it's in people's psychology because you know he used to now of course he proposed that the world's going to end in 2012 and i would have these long late night conversations with him about that and i think i talked him out of it one night Uh, But it was a story that was filling seats at seminars. But he would always say, look, you know, if we actually ever encountered an alien, it would be so dramatically different. It wouldn't be a guy in a rubber suit, and they wouldn't be interested in us for, you know, examining our body part or our orifices or whatever is supposed to have happened in these, these encounters. And they wouldn't crash in Roswell, New Mexico. They wouldn't be so clumsy as, like, Oops, I put put my foot on the brake instead of the gas and I crashed out and you know all of these all of the descriptions of UFOs from that world are they're so pedantic and they're so infantile and they're so uninteresting whereas a true ET that was able to get across interstellar space would be so dramatically impressive and and different than us not speaking at our level at all not communicating at our level and I, I study the likelihood of life on other worlds, uh, Mars. I'm on one of the site selection teams for Mars 2020, which uh, is a, as a rover, uh, which they just announced two days ago. I don't even know if this is public, but for our group. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, they're going to put a drone on it. So it's going to carry a little helicopter drone, uh, which will be very interesting. It, it's a 1,600-pound vehicle. It's It's like Curiosity, but upgraded comes down on a sky crane and there are three landing sites in the final selection. I'm on one of the teams to return to Columbia Hills where we think we found an old Yellowstone preserved hot spring, which could preserve evidence for life. You know, so we're, we are in an uphill battle because it's a site we have a rover at now that that rover discovered silica, basically opaline. Wait, a rover on Mars? Yeah. So, so the, the previous two rovers were spirit and opportunity Spirit was dragging a bum wheel at in, in the Gosev Crater at this area called Columbia Hills, and it turned up white powder. Columbia Hills on Mars. On Mars, okay. yeah. And and that's powder. Is, I've been there before. You've been there, right. <laughs> Gorgeous. So faces on Mars <laughs> yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Super red. Amazing. Yeah, not a good place for humans, I'll tell you. <laughs> okay. You should not try to build a base there, but... Uh, yeah, that's a lot of that's pseudoscience too. A lot of that visioning about settlements on Mars too. It's just not realistic. So, what are your um, 
bring me into that world a little bit. So you're put you're putting a third rover on Mars in mm-hmm. 2020. In 2020, yeah. And you're selecting the site for it now. For the site, yeah. So the meeting in October is the final. It's the final meeting where scientists, geologists, and engineers can have input. Uh, so we were we were at eight teams or eight sites, and now we're down to three. So the October meeting in Los Angeles will be it for the input, and then headquarters decides. Okay. Ultimately, they're they're going to decide. So did I hear you right that you said that you don't think that Mars is a uh, good place for human life to no end not, up? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. It's 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 a fallacy. Um, Mars. So Mars, possibly by as early as four to five hundred million years after it formed, the planet formed, it lost most of its atmosphere and liquid water at the surface. It dried down to almost like a vacuum state. And it's hard, high ultraviolet. Uh, it's super dry and perchlorates in the soils, which kills anything biological. What does perchlorate mean? It's a kind of a, it's a mineral that's created by these conditions. Uh, a mineral, it's a chemical compounds that just wipe out membranes. And it's, it, you couldn't grow potatoes in it. There's no way. So Mars is a terrible place to consider placing a human civilization uh, because it's a huge sink. So it's a sink in terms of uh, the chemical composition, the atmosphere is wrong, we can't breathe it, et cetera, et cetera. Our proposal for Shepard, this, this whole asteroid enclosure in a balloon, a balloon structure around asteroids, is possibly a viable way to move civilization into space by making new worlds rather than trying to terraform or condition an existing dead world uh, you could create new ones by simply putting an encapsulation around the asteroids melting their cores down Whoa. and creating um, biospheres directly like biodome bike biodome yeah <laughs> and you can pull minerals. Polly Shores just signing up right <laughs> he's gonna be the first the first astronaut oh that's really interesting I um so that's in a. So do you think that that's the most feasible way right now to to move civilization is by creating totally. atmospheres over asteroids? Yeah, and they have. Uh, so origin of life, quite possibly started in these shallow pools on land connected with hot springs. That was the cover of Scientific American last August, um, where that our our hypothesis was put out to the world. It's called the hot spring origin hypothesis. So if if hot spring pools that are cycling, they're kind of like little chemical labs, uh, can create polymers and encapsulate the polymers in material coming from space. What are polymers? Uh, they're like your DNA, RNA, and your proteins. Okay. So you're made out of polymers, mostly, and lipids, which are the cell walls. That's pretty much what you're made out of, and water. And, and so all of that feedstock would have come in from space, right? This dust grains and asteroids and well, meteorites coming in. And all that stuff is still there. So when the solar systems formed, it had this disk of carbonaceous asteroids and it's crammed with amino acids and nucleobases and fatty acids and kind of like your brags you put on a salad. And it, it's, it's still there and it's four billion years old, four or five billion years old. And that's the material that perhaps life started from and that's how life can grow is if we can utilize that. And there's trillions of them. Some of them are half water ice and half rock. You know, they're all kinds. 
but planets were made from them and probably life started from them. So that's what we need to learn how to harvest from. So what is your goal on the Mars rover mission? Uh, the goal... If, it's, if not yeah. civilization. Well, the goal is to look... Well, putatively, the goal is to look for signs of past life on Mars. Uh, but none of the instruments are really appropriate for it. So we kind of figured out that this is just another geology mission looking for... It's a very good mission. It's looking for um, the age of Mars rocks or Mars's history. So they want to land in a place where it's very old. The rocks are clearly old. And if there was past water flowing, then we can look at what was water doing on the surface of Mars. Um, in order to find evidence for life on Mars, if, there's li if life ever started on Mars, it probably started in wet environments, possibly around hot springs, which there are several known old hot springs that are dried out. Um, but as Mars died... As the surface became uninhabitable, that life would have gone down through the plumbing of the hot spring and be in the rock, in hot rocks, in salty hot rocks. And you'd have to drill a long way to see if you could find bacteria. Like you can in Earth, you can find these bacteria deep in the crust. Um, and we're not going to be able to do that anytime soon. So what they're hoping to do is collect a bunch of samples and then return them to Earth in 10 years or something. What I proposed for our mission was a rock hammer. Like when I go to Australia or New Zealand, I'll bring in I'll bring a geopic, which is just a rock hammer that geologists use and break rocks. And if you break rocks in the right part of Australia, they fall open and you see these these ripples. And those ripples are stromatolites. And in the northwest of Australia, they're three and a half billion years old. And th that was biofilms. So you know when a when a river comes out onto a lake shore or the ocean, you get these muddy salt, muddy flats, right, that are stinky. And that's basically layers of, of biology, biological films that are inhabiting the sandy shore. And if a tide comes in or the river washes some more sediments in, it will cover up those films. And those films tend to, in stromatolites, they tend to grow up to keep access for the sunlight, and then they make a hard hardening of the, the sand grains together and make a layer. And these these things still exist all over the Earth, and they were the, the dominant form of life for 90% of Earth's history. Stromatolites are what are called microbial mats. They, they still dominate life on Earth. The microbial mat grew up and became forests and trees and and fishes and you know animals that grazed on the mat, the products of the mat. But the microbial mat is it. So if microbial mats ever started on Mars, we might see these thin, ripply-like textures if we can break open the right rocks on Mars. Dude, you are really looking to solve those two questions that you set for yourself when you were 14 years old. Yeah. <laughs> Going yeah. to New Zealand and Mars. Yeah, New Zealand uh, next month, uh, I'm taking racks of chemicals down there meeting a Maori a guy who's a big astrobiology fan. And they, the Maori are the native peoples of, of, uh, of, of New Zealand. They're incredible. I mean, they're incredible warriors. They're incredible dancers. They, you know, they mastered tattoo arts. I mean, they're amazing people. And where their lands where they have hot springs bubbling up, you're, we'll be allowed to put chemicals right into the hot spring, which we can't do in the national parks. And the guy said, hey, man, you can put anything you want in these pools because we used to cook pigs in here. 
you know, like <laughs> yeah. the pigs that you were talking about. So yeah, yeah, I'm going to give you some uh, some sausage when you leave. Yeah, and so these are called the cooking pots. So I'm going to the cooking pots to try to make the simplest little protocells inside uh, basically these pools with acid and alkaline waters, which I, we did in Yellowstone last June, just published the paper on it. We're able to form these little capsules and put in the capsules RNA and DNA. Hot spring water, directly straight out of the hot springs. So we're going to do it again, but we're going to dry down and rehydrate to try to make those polymers right on site, right there at, at, at Rotorua. So what is the hypothesis that you've set for this upcoming trip and the science that you're doing there? That we can take what we can do every day in the lab and do it sitting like push the dish right into sand next to the hot hot spring and have it do the same trick. So where we literally take the building blocks of RNA, which is an important biopolymer, it helps run, you run your body. We take the, the, the pieces of it, stick it in the dish, uh, take some water from the hot spring and pour it into the dish and then sit there for an hour while the dish dries down. And we also put lipid, we various... These are kind of like, think of them like soap bubbles. Uh, and a bathtub ring forms in the bottom of the dish, and you can sort of see it. It's like a cl- uh, translucent thing. And in between the layers of that lipid, the, the building blocks of RNA stitch themselves together like a zipper. And then, boom, we have a long piece of RNA when we had just individual bits before. And we pour a little bit of hot spring water back in, and it will form trillions of containers containing RNA. And then we dry it down again and do it again, do it maybe three, four times, and the RNA keeps growing in length. And this is random RNA, not like your body, which has programmed RNA. But this would have been the only way nature could make RNA and peptides and all sorts of things uh, and, and just basically run a roulette wheel, run a giant roulette wheel saying, I can make trillions of random sequences. I can put them inside little capsules and we'll test to see how they stabilize the capsule. And if the capsule's stable through the wet phase and comes back down into the dry phase, it dumps its cargoes back. It's like a surfer coming back in, right? You go out, test yourself against a big wave and come back. You are now an evolved surfer, right? <laughs> because you lived. If you never came back, you never paddled back in, you're off the tour, right? And others will replace you. but. But, you know, these incredible surfers evolve themselves by going out and testing themselves. So literally the very beginning of life is the same process. It was this testing of this random stuff until the random stuff started doing jobs. And then it got selected. And then you just make more of that stuff, which is no longer random anymore. And you're on the way to life. That's as simple as that. So on this trip, you will be replicating the origins of how life on earth got started in a very simple way yeah uh, so attempting to get a clue from in from intuition so dave dave deemer's intuition years ago was that hey if lipids lipid membranes plaster themselves down they're going to organize the monomers from a 3d soup into a two-dimensional layering and that might work and and his intuition was right and we could grow these polymers then my intuition came in when i said like six seven years ago what happens when we refill the dishes and then i did a thought experiment one night kind of like the one i had when i was 14 or einstein would have 
And I sat there after breath work and meditation, because I've been putting this in my head for like a year or two, and I felt it coming through my body. Like, ooh, this is going to be good. This, this, The full vision is happening. What did it feel like? It was like an, a trill of excitement, and my imagination started powering up like faster, and I started to see how we could test this with little mineral dishes and then a rocker plate that would rock the dish back and forth, and then suddenly, boom, I was in the actual full simulation. So Were I'd, you the simulation? I was, yeah, my brain had then turned on and was starting to run, like there was a delivered vision was happening. Okay, uh, what kind of breath work and meditation were you doing to get to this state? I was doing, so I did the sun salutation yoga, is just this, the basic things to get your body uncrimped. And then I was doing pranayama breath work. So I was doing, uh, it's something I learned in the art of living from Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, who's this teacher of this. I learned it when I was in Pakistan, actually, years ago. And so I, I did a full course, like the full course oxygenates the brain. Um, it You do overtoning. I do like mantras that completely wake up the entire, like you might call a spirit center. Will you do a few rounds of them? Mm? Yeah. You, sure. Yeah. yeah. What does it look like? Do it's, a few rounds. Oh, here? Yeah, sure. Um, I'd probably blow out the mic. Okay. But is it, I just want to get the basic breath what, what uh, you, rhythm. What you do, you do the uh, initial series is these pastrika breath, uh, the uh, ojai breath, where you do belly breathing and you pull it in and hold it. And then you push it out with your belly and you hold it down there. So the lungs then start to reach for breath. So you do series of those. And then you do the pastrika, which is this pumping action with your fist where you're blasting air out. And that turns the brain off, turns mental process off, which is good because mental process runs away with so much energy. And then you do like an oming three-way thing, and that wakes up the entire like stuff is coming up through you. Your body's now woken up. And then the pranayama is these, basically, it's like breath of fire. People know breath of fire. But you do a, a slow pace series of 20 and then a, a middle 40 and a higher 40 like super ra- rapid breath of fires and then i would end with like a mantra like a raga almost like a morning raga i would just sing and when you're done with that you're completely connected i think to your own cosmos you know and you're you're just, you're no longer in thought you're just really kind of i don't know and and so then i would sit in a kind of meditation and by that point you know what's going to happen in the day because it's all been worked out but in this particular day, it was December 30th, 2013, and it was down in, in Hollywood, of all places, on a hilltop in Hollywood. And this huge vision just started rolling through my system. And about 45, I could see the entire cycling of these protocells through wet, dry, and moist phases. And I could see the polymers emerging and pores forming and metabolism starting. And then colonies of these protocells, which are not live yet, but they're they have lifelike properties flowing into another corner of the pool where there's different resources. I can see the entire thing working. And then I, I rushed upstairs and I drew it and I wrote to Dave and said, here it is. 
And he wrote back something like, you found it. You found the kinetic trap. Who is Dave? Uh, Dave Deemer at UC Santa Cruz. Did you have an intention to meditate on this experiment, or did you try and clear your mind from any any place? I had had a, a, a sort of a very powerful waking dream on it in October. And, and as we were talking about earlier, I, people have these lucid dreams, and then they go, they wake up and they go to their phone and their coffee and they're gone, right? With me, I, I really prize those things. So I'd had this lucid dream in October and, and it, it was so puzzling that I just kept working on this problem. Like it showed the, it showed the first cell division, but it was a failure and, and, a, and a piece of the cell popped off and it was dead but the cell was more alive than before it attempted this cell division. I thought, that is so strange. And then it led to this insight. So I was working on that for like, just in the background mentally, like why would a cell division fail? Why would it even bother to try? And then I realized the only way that life could begin, which you might define as cells dividing, which is a really hard technical problem, is if it was trying to do something else and it and it just accidentally divided itself and and i worked out how it had to be in community so that the cells were not ever individual they were in this mass the protocells were in this aggregate mass and that it could safely try to divide because if you're out floating out in if you're in the ocean and you try to like divide yourself you know some fishes are, and sharks are coming to eat the pieces right but if you're in a, a group and you like in a community you have a baby right? The baby supported by the community has a chance of surviving. If you're a mother alone in the wilderness of the baby, the mother and the baby will die. You need community around you. And I realized the origin of life was not in single individuals. It was a community. It was a network. So that unit that was the actual common ancestor wasn't, wasn't individuals. It was a network effect, uh, a sharing network. And then that vision in three months later, I saw it. And then I actually took it, I took it to Dave, wrote it to Dave, and we turned it into chemistry in our first publication. And then I took the idea to George Fox at the University of Houston, who co-coined the term progenote with Carl Woese in the 1970s. And the progenote was their idea of the boot-up phase from raw chemicals to living cells. And they, they described it. So I showed this to George and, and Woes has, has died. Woes won the Nobel Prize for the, for their work. Uh, and George turned to me and said, you have come as close as I've seen to anyone to describing the progenote and be able to have a path to, to recreate it. And so I called Dave. I said, just what George Fox just said. So we started using the word progenote. So what I was seeing in my vision was already described in science, but we got permission in a sense to say that we are looking for this this thing that boots up into the living world the sludge when you are diving deep into these visions do you uh follow a specific diet generally yeah i mean if you're say going to do a dieta and or you're doing vipassana or a dieta in the amazon or whatever if you have a if anytime you eat super heavy foods especially the terrible northern european diet of which I don't understand how this ever got started, but heavy meat and potatoes. So what happens to meat and potatoes, you can't digest 
the meat because the starches are in the way and the starches rot and turn into alcohol. This is why after turkey and... They ferment and you have smelly they, farts. That's right. And and so, you of course, you pass out after turkey dinner, after Thanksgiving. The French and the Italians are much smarter, right? They they will put oils with everything to help digest it, and they won't go for that heavy combo. But somehow the Anglo-Saxon world and the Germanic world, whatever, never got the clue. Maybe because... They just needed to pass out. You know, they're living in these. <laughs> sure. These other so what would be your perfect diet if you're trying to solve one of these big problems and going deep into these visions? I'm recently, uh, interestingly enough, David Asprey's Bulletproof, adding the fats back in so that the, the brain has, neurons have a feeding mechanism. Those high quality oils are really good. I mean, they're... MCT oil. Yeah. Yeah, um, certainly fish oils, MCT oils, a butter, good quality butter. I mean, I think it. I think he's on to something. I think this really does help mental states. And for years, we were told to starve our systems from fats. You know. And do you drink uh, bulletproof coffee? I I am more and more. Yeah, I make it myself, and a friend of mine got me into it. So it's it, it, it's definitely I mean it's like the best advertisement ever for these guys. Well, you know I and and these. Uh, what did I do with bulletproof coffee? Merely solved the question of where life came from. Well, actually, I was drinking regular coffee at that time, but uh, but I, t- I find it just depleted my system. Regular uh, things like this. Um, I think that really it depends on your body type. I think there is no one proper diet for anyone, but certainly heavy. Super heavy food is going to knock your system completely out. Adequate sleep. I mean, if you have inadequate sleep, you're running a huge deficit on everything. Everything is pulled down. Um, too much media consumption, inadequate sleep. Forget it. You're never going to get there. If if you have a life that is very frayed, like where you're you're super stressed out in a relationship or you're stressed out over money all the time, they say that, you know, People whose lives are not, who are not um, solid and they don't have any peace in their lives, they can't make spiritual progress, they cannot make intellectual progress. If your life is really uh, stressful and frayed and unpredictable, you just can't do it, period. You have to have a calm base under you. You know, and back in the old days, they would, they, people would seek patrons, uh, or you'd be like Charles Darwin, where you're a country gentleman and you have family wealth, so you don't have those stresses. But that's where I think, in a sense, science can get in trouble because uh, young people are entering science now. Um, they're in debts, they're indebted, and their principal investigators or their lab heads are having to raise money constantly and paperwork and things like They're very, very stressed, and they're working too long an hour or hours, so they, they can't make the breakthroughs. They just can't do it. Their systems are not set up for even the 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 mechanism and the metal of the breakthrough can't come through them because they're they're also doing very, very small things, not big things. The science does not reward people for doing um, visionary things. I mean, it would be suicide if you're a young scientist and you're 32 and trying to get a postdoc position and you took on a big quest, that would be suicide. You're only going to be given your assistant professorship as if you're right on, right down the line of like, well, we're going to add this amount of knowledge to this, this area of oncology 
and we're going to do this and then we're going to get significant funding and so big questions aren't taken up by young people which is a real problem how do we solve that problem you can do it partially through um my path which was i just was patient for 25 years and kept working on the problem even though i was not technically in science i was in technology and then eventually popped out into science got the phd late in my 40s and but i i was very matured and i built big social networks i knew richard dawkins i knew you know freeman dyson all these people i knew because i'd held conferences and they'd come to the conferences i built the social network that's the hard way um if, if a young investigator can get foundation grants or grants from like high net worth individuals who create innovative uh, institutes, we're, we're forming one now called the Biota Institute, which will do exactly that. You know, SETI Institute's one of them, Perimeter Institute, there's, there's ones that have been get, getting 100 or 200 million from an individual donor, and they have a lot more freedom. So they can pull in postdocs and grad students and, and do visionary things. Now, they still have to get other grants. So you still have to do, you have to do some of the normal line, really narrow cast grant applications just to keep your, your bills paid. Um, but there are cracks here and there. There's very little what we call gentleman science going on where, like James Lovelock, who would be on his farm in Devonshire or where it was, and he would have an employer that he would design instruments for. But then the rest of the time, he was creating his gas, measuring things, and traveling the world, finding the ozone hole. You know, Lovelock, uh, creating Gaia theory and whatnot, because he was a, a farm gentleman scientist. And he would show up at the meetings, and he had the degree, and he wasn't in an institution. Uh, in his last book, called A Rough Ride to the Future, which is really haunting if you read it. Um, he talks about the death of the gentleman scientist. Like, he's one of the last. Dave and I count ourselves in that. But it takes a huge amount of of, of the right things happening so you can do that. I mean, you you have to be self-funded, you know, and, and most of the time trying to get self-funded and make a bunch of cash in, say, a startup or something, that changes you so much. It changes you into a startup person and you become a good at boards of directors and dealing with investors and stuff, but you didn't have any time to do your science. And so everything you do conditions you toward that direction. So I am concerned that we can't make big breakthroughs if we continue the way we're pigeonholing things and forcing people to work these hours. Yeah. One thing I've noticed about you as well, um, listening to your interview on Rogan and on Tangentially Speaking and a few others is that you're very unafraid to uh, operate in a lot of different worlds. I think that it would be really easy for someone like yourself to push the consciousness community to the side and be like, well, that's all woo-woo bullshit. Mm -hmm. I don't want anything to do with that. Or um, any, I, I think that there is a big issue with tribalism and us being afraid to speak to one another and, and kind of take the best and leave the rest. And mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. seem to have done a really good job doing that. And also, um, you seem very unafraid to 
uh, I don't know if unafraid to be discredited is the right way to put it, but you just seem like you've maintained a very curious mind about things and really benefited from that. Yeah, I, I generally, I'm from Canada, and Canadians tend to be, that we're trained to, uh, like, take in multiple points of view. Um, Canada invented this idea of the ombudsperson, the person that, was, that would work out a negotiated solution. Uh, it's a society that was put together as a confederation. It didn't have a big war, right? The United States had the Revolutionary War, and then it had the Civil War, and so it was it was it was basically fashioned by conflict uh, and by difference, you know, us versus them. Canada's formation was refugees from the War of Independence who, who flooded north, who didn't want anything to do with it, and then. This whole idea of a confederation, of working out how do we all work together? How do we work with native peoples? How do we work with French, the huge French colony in Quebec, in lower and upper Canada? And how do we create a nation out of these disparate parts? And so, and then how to create a good society? What's the priority? Well, it's families, you know, things like this. And then how do we deal with the superpower to the south and the superpower to the west uh, and the superpowers to the east in Europe? And the west was the USSR. And Canada learned how to work with them all because we were right in the middle of the whole thing. you know. And so Canadians learned how to adapt to wherever they were living and become more like the people where they were living. And there's millions of us that live all over the world and we tend to sort of blend in. And Canadians don't have strong nationalism at all. So it's a Canada is sort of a post-nation nation in a lot of ways. Um, and so when we study the United States, we study, okay, this is how this culture works. Um, and it's sort of sometimes horrifying the way that this place works, and sometimes it's very inspiring. So um, when I came here, my whole approach was... Uh, Let's just explore. Let's figure out, you know, there's all this, all these new age, wonderful new age things in California. Let's go, go and dive in and experience all that. Let's, there's techies. Let's go dive into that and go into their world, put on their, their clothes, you know, and their mental states and just become them. And, you know, there's this shamanism stuff. Let's go into that. There's burner culture. Let's go into that. There's, um, and I'll just become that and because you'll be stretched and extended and then you can have conversations with those people. So I even took up surfing for a while, which has helped in this conversation because I could um, have a conversation about surfing because I could be inside your system and, and be amazed at, at how you embody a deep understanding of these energy systems that are moving waves around. And, and that's thrilling for me. So I, I call it putting myself on the shelf just putting myself away for a while and just becoming the other and, and having no prejudice or even you know, having no critical mind going at all. That's a beautiful way to move through life. Um, Terrence McKenna was interviewed by Surfer Magazine. He was? In, yeah, in the 1960s. And I, there was a quote, I I'll, I'll, won't get it completely right, but Terrence said something along the lines of that he, f he thought that 
surfers were um, the closest thing to an enlightened being there was. And he had this beautifully well-oiled way of saying, you know, how you've kind of ride these energy systems for no particular reason. Wonderful. Yeah. um, I want to try and find the article. He nailed it. Because that's true. I mean people who i mean you i think the closer that i am to this like i would not uh describe surfers as enlightened beings but when you kind of step back and and look at it as mm-hmm. you know if you were an alien looking down on earth and saw a surfer right it'd be pretty cool yeah because if you, if you saw and sort of detected the psychology of a uh, the average commuter right on silicon valley highways versus a surfer it would be really different yeah Absolutely. Or a person screaming in a political arena or, you know, uh, yeah, the surfers just sitting out on their boards going up and down on the waves, you know, boy, yeah. it would be like, well, they, the aliens would certainly, they would land on the water and want to talk to those dudes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, I, the, I, I tell the joke. The locals in Santa Cruz would be like, beat it, where are you from? <laughs> well, I, I, I told this joke one year at Burning Man in one of my talks that, that actually... One year on the playa, like years ago, a huge alien spacecraft did land, right? And I saw this thing come down. A huge saucer landed, and no one noticed. And then people started walking out around it because it was obviously some art, playa art. And then the uh, aliens came off, and they were wearing tutus because it was tutu Tuesdays. They were in of good. Course. They had done their homework. They were three feet tall, and they were green. They were wearing tutus. And <laughs> yeah. They walked around the esplanade for hours took some stuff, whatever they did, and, and had a great time, but no one noticed. I mean, like, just no one noticed. So they, they went back into the craft, and at about 4 in the morning when everyone was passed out, it took off and decided that we were cool enough to let us into the Federation at level G, you know, the <laughs> lowest level, and the Spock would be arriving soon to do this hand, si- hand signal and welcome us in at the lowest level, of course, but... Then they would create uh, Burning Man events on their home planets. Well, if there was a place to land on Earth and be incognito and not have anyone notice you, it would be Burning Man. <laughs> it would be Burning Man. Yeah. And all that was left was this great big dish impression in the desert and still there. <laughs> it's got it's got kryptonite in it. Yeah. What were um, the biggest lessons that you learned from Terrence McKenna? You know, I think the the biggest lesson I learned from Terrence is just... Oh boy! Um, really, it was the love of the the story, you know, and how beautiful he was at at winding these stories, and how natural he was. It just sort of it took took my head, you know, my whole head off, just hearing how he could thread from the beginning and weave it all back together. Yeah, is For, there anyone in particular that that almost, comes to mind? Almost all of them. I mean, the valley of novelty and when when we get started on the time wave and all that, it was such, I don't know, it would just rub me the wrong way because here's a man who'd never written a line of code talking about computers becoming intelligent, which is still a nonsense idea that rubs me the wrong way. Um, but when he talked about history and her, hermetics and, and, you know, life and the future and even his trips, his trip tales were just ripping and roaringly fun. Uh, they started to, in the 90s, he was telling them over and over again, and they started to sort of drag anchor a little bit. But I just loved it. And, you know, I I really feel uh, uh, a paucity 
from not having more time with him because at the time I was meeting him and we were starting to work together and we were going to do an Esalen program together and we're going on the, on the road because I think he realized I could tell the tech life space story. He could tell the history, hermetics, a story. We, we, we were going to become kind of a partnership. And then he got very ill and he was gone within a year. We helped see him out. And uh, then we digitized the, him from cassettes over several years and reconstructed Humpty Dumpty and put him out in the Psychedelic Salon podcast so that people could hear his voice because it was, it was in the pre-internet audio era. There was really nothing there. There were just cassette tapes God, lying around. he would around. have the best podcast today. <laughs> huh? I said he would have the best podcast today. He would have had a great podcast. And so we've, between Lorenzo Haggerty and... Diana Slattery and all these wonderful people that, uh, and, and Ralph Abraham helped uh, and, and people that got us huge cassette libraries. We're, we're about 90%, 90th percentile of, of recapturing him. Wow. So probably th- almost 300 talks. And Lorenzo sometimes accidentally repodcasts the same one he did eight years ago and even reads the same introduction, like whatever. But people have heard it before but uh, i never get tired of it it's a great example of the power of story and metaphor yeah i've been thinking about this a lot more recently i I guess as a journalist and storyteller i think about it often but i've had the chance to go on as a guest to a few different podcasts recently and you're in the guest seat yeah and i feel like i'm kind of right in the middle like I definitely have the feeling of being a fraud going on because I'm like, I'm 28, like learning a ton from all of these smart these people, people. But yeah, like come back to me when I'm 50, I'll have some stories for you. But I've, well, I've had, I've, I've been forced to kind of wrap these stories up. And the uh, irony was that the oldest cassettes, the oldest recording we ever found of Terrence, we think is from late 1982. And it's somebody pushing a microphone on a stand like this over to Terrence and saying, Terrence, will you tell that story about UFOs again? It's like he had just told it and, and somebody decided to record him. And this was at home because we could hear a screaming kid in the background. We think that's Finn McKenna. So this is like at home in Northern California or in Hawaii. And it's recording number one. And he was just fresh out of the eggshell. He was exactly the way he was. So let's see, 1982, is he, is he 28? Oh, 1946, well, 30-something. Yeah. But he was fully formed. And when he was at the Experimental College in, in Berkeley in 1969-70, he was just still the raconteur. And, and it was a strategy because he was this goggle-eyed, very nerdy kid in a southern Colorado town was very quite rough place and and I think it was his way of defending himself and providing value so it was a survival strategy for Terrence to be able to tell these tall tales and um, many of them are much of them are tall tales let's face it but we just loved it and we loved him and um, we're so glad that, that he sort of, there's a canon of Terrence out there. Yeah, it is great. Um, well, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, and uh, you mentioned the, the singularity and then merging with technology bit, which, um, I want to get into with you another time, but I do, uh, I do want to get your perspective on, um, 
of the future of conservation because I think that there are these two schools of thought mm-hmm. in amongst um, people in the technology world and people in the right. conservation world. In the conservation world. Um, you know, I'll use uh, the example of plastic pollution. Mm. Um, right now, there is a brilliant young guy named Boyan Slot who's um, developing an invention to be able to capture plastic from the oceans. Mm. Um, and he was just on Joe Rogan's podcast. He's gotten a, he's got a ton of funding from, from various private funders. Um, and he hasn't done it yet. And a lot of people think that it's not possible because mm. you're dealing with the fucking ocean. Uh, and the yeah. solution to an issue like plastic pollution is going to be through one city at a time, one person mm. at a time, one mm-hmm. company at a time, um, taking the onus of this issue. But we so desperately want a kind of Tony Stark character to come along and solve our issues yeah. for us um, yeah. that we just, we love that kind of myth. And I, and I know that that's kind of an obtuse and broad question, but I wanted to get your perspective on it given the worlds that you've had a chance yeah. to operate in i was just i was in the galapagos islands in november and at the research station because we're we're doing a conference there in two or three years actually when mars 2020 lands and they had these basically bird stomachs and they were full of i mean they had assays every single fish and bird stomach that came off the fishing boats that are going off the Galapagos had plastic. There was not one that didn't. And these are where the currents are coming together. You have this amazing... The gyres. The gyres. And uh, it was like humbling because the young re- the researchers at University of San Francisco, the Quito station there were like, we didn't expect every single sample to come up with every one. So I think, I think it's implausible to think of doing something about the the sink of plastic that's already there it's just implausible i mean the ocean is there's a certain hubris that comes out of silicon valley culture and you can see it through elon musk and mars colony colonization kinds of things just because you can do graphics and a great presentation doesn't mean that it's viable at all it's just you can impress people with things but when it comes to be on the ground to do things step by step like true engineers never make really these grandiose proposals because they know how fallible our engineering is and this is why ai thing always bothers me because you know software systems fall apart in an instant if you're not maintaining them upgrading them and still there's log files that get filled and whole server grids come down and it's just such a it's it's a a tower of crap is what it is most of our technology is and it's just held together by bailing wire and by guys with beards and big bellies sitting at serve you know in front of administrative consoles to keep this whole thing going so um i'd say that um we should we should be very careful about our hubris as a species because if we've created a problem so massive as toxification of the oceans through these bead plastics to the amount of energy and effort needed to filter that out is, is beyond our civilization's capacity. Just as trying to terraform Mars is far beyond our our civilization. We created a larger problem. Um, so so for I think you're you're absolutely right that 
there will come a time. So a previous example was the toxification of the European river systems that sort of started in the 1800s. And the Rhine was a mess. I mean, the Rhine was so polluted from one end to the other. And um, you had the Ruhr Valley uh, collieries and forges, and you had everything being dumped into the Rhine, you could imagine. It was like a cesspool. And over the decades, the, the replacement of coal foundries, the replacement of all these techniques of, of making industrial civilization led to a concerted effort from the 1960s to clean up the Rhine, and they did it. And there's fish, there's salmon running in the Rhine. The same thing with the Danube. The Danube in the communist period, terrible. By the time it came out into the Black Sea, that was done by a multi-nation, concerted replacement of certain technologies with others. The Monterey Bay overfished. You know, it was so overfished, it crashed so hard, right, that fishing was banned. It was considered to be a lost cause. Blue whales were going extinct because they couldn't get bait balls. They couldn't get any feeding, California humpback whales and everything. But look how fast the Monterey Bay bounced back, how impressively, and now the blue whales coming from the southern hemisphere to, to feed here. So nature has a tremendous power to regenerate if we take the pressure off the system and systemically change what we're doing in the environment. But it's a social thing more than it is a technological thing. A nation just has to decide that this is unacceptable, that we're living with a cesspool running through London called the Thames. Uh, and societal change, generational change, and technological change across the board. It's almost like you can't even predict it or plan for it. Right. Yeah, there's a, a group that I always love to talk about called Cal Trout, um, and they're working in the Sacramento Delta mm -hmm. to uh, replenish the salmon population. And they found that one of the main reasons that uh, juvenile salmon weren't able to survive their journey out of the Sacramento Delta was because um, the river was long and straight and cement, and there mm. weren't these shallow spots where algal blooms could occur and the nutrients would um, feed the baby salmon, right? right? Because right. if you look at a natural river, it meanders, there are shallow spots, deep spots. Um, so by the time that the, ba that the juveniles would reach the ocean, they'd be so malnourished yeah, that they could they'd be starved to death, yeah. right? So they found um, that the rice fields adjacent to the Sacramento Delta had to get flooded every year. So they created these kinds of grates that the baby salmon could go could in, go in on the on the rice fields. They called them the floodplain fatties, and wow. they and they. Um, they found that the the juveniles grew to be four times the size of that, the ones just with that one yeah with this, this one um kind of idea of biomimicry really right this, right of, of replicating nature yeah and uh i just love stories like that you know stories where we notice the wisdom of nature and try and replicate it as much as possible. Like um, the ozone hole problem in the early 90s, you know, and the world came together, banned CFCs from just spray cans, you no know, ridiculous uses, and refrigerators replaced it. And uh, what could have been a huge... What were CFCs? CFCs, uh, chlorofluorocarbons. So that was killing off the, the ozone, the O3 in the atmosphere, and it was going to lead to us being like Mars with hard UV coming through. So suddenly in Australia, it became dangerous not to be out 
without a hat and it became dangerous to be on the South Pole. Cause was this in the 80s? In the 90, 80s into the 90s. It's what Lovelock discovered. And and so the nations of the world came together and banned these chemicals to, to emit it to the atmosphere. And that hole repaired itself. Otherwise, we would have been, oh my gosh, you know, we would have had serious problems. I mean, the ultraviolet radiation, which we're protected from, thanks to life over 4 billion years making the oxygen, we would lose that protective blanket. And you would have found, I mean, it would have damaged all of agriculture irreparably, um, just burning up your skin. I mean, try ultraviolet sometime on your on your body and see what it does. And and the world did come together, and then nature, the this planetary system, healed quickly. And, and it, it was an example of where we made a right move. Like, at the same time, we were going to get rid of 50,000 nuclear warheads, which was a bad thing to build and point at, at, at a trigger's notice. You know, a bad thing for everyone, mutually assured destruction. So at, at periods of time, we've done the right thing as a, as a species. We really have made the right move. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on my show. Um, where can people check out your work? Uh, it's all at damer.com, D-A-M-E-R.com. And the Levity Zone podcasters is my own personal thing. And there's two TEDx talks from TEDx Santa Cruz that you'll like. They're nine minutes each. I was given a budget. I could do two talks in one session. And so I did the Future in Space and the origin of life uh, on that one day. And those are some of my best works. Great. What year was that? that you did 2015 that? at the Rio Theater over here. Cool. I got to do a TEDx talk in uh, 2019. And I went up in my wet uh, in my wetsuit. 2019 gave, or 29? Sorry, 20. Sorry, 2000. No, it would be 2009. 2009. I think it was 2009. I went up in my wetsuit and gave a talk. Oh, that's cool. You're on stage in a wetsuit. In a wetsuit and a surfboard. I talked about the banking system. Whoa. Yeah. Don't, don't bank on this. I'll, uh, I'll send it to you. Thank you again so much. Um, I would love to have you on another time and uh, go out and get you some sausage right now. Yeah, thank you, Kyle. And yeah, let's. Um, I don't know if you're going to get me in the water again, but who knows? Open invitation, man. We've got a ton of longboards back there, and i got a wetsuit for you. Hey, thanks, man. <laughs> right. Right. That is our show. I'm going to play you out the song called Me and Baby Brother by Light the Band. They're a local Santa Cruz band who listen to this podcast, and they sent me over some groovy tunes. I will link to their band page in the show notes on my website, kyle.surf. If you are part of a band and you want your song played at the end of this show, you can email it to info at kyle.surf, um, and I'd love to play it. Once again, if you get value out of this show, please consider donating. Even just the equivalent of buying me a cup of coffee every month on Patreon really does make the difference. So you can click the link below this episode to donate or head over to my website, kyle.surf. That's also where you can check out my book club, my monthly email, uh, my documentaries, all kinds of good stuff over at kyle.surf. If you don't have the cash to donate, Please don't stress. Share this episode with a friend. Um, I don't advertise, so the only way that people hear about this podcast is by listeners like you. Have a great day. Get out in the water. Give someone a high five. I will see you soon. And I hope you enjoy this song called Me and Baby Brother by Light the Band. One, two. 
together.